We'll just move this way. Am I on, Bowler? Whoa. Dwayne's tall. Well, when I was in Calgary, I stayed with some some good friends. You can put them on the screen, Olin. <coughs> Akbar and Zara. Let me tell you how I met them. I met Akbar in the fall of 20, 2006. I was traveling back from Toronto on an on a airplane, of course. And uh, <laughs> I had been uh, in a long uh, week of meetings, and I'm sure what made it partly long is Dana was in them. <laughs> And, you know, after a long set of meetings, um, you come home and it's late in the evening and I was so glad there was a seat between me and the other guy. You know what I'm saying? We kind of exchanged some pleasantries and then, I don't know, drift off to sleep or something. So the guy in the, in the far seat, in the aisle seat, had a leather jacket on, uh, goatee, very, very Middle Eastern looking. And, uh, well, I, I leaned across the seat and we said hello and, Really thick accent, had a hard time understanding him. Um, and then I'm not sure what possessed me to ask him, the, like literally the third question I asked him was, are you a Muslim? And then, yeah, imagine that. And then what ensued was the most amazing conversation I've had uh, for many years. And, and we leaned across that center seat, I kid you not, for the four plus hours from Toronto to Calgary, and there was hardly a break in conversation. Now, I admit I had to lean a bit close to try to understand what was being said, but nonetheless, uh, we had this amazing conversation. It ranged everywhere from religion to politics to to philosophy to life to um, the fact that he never wants to have kids. Show the next slide. Yep. I, I reminded him of that this week. I reminded him of that. And there was a moment, there was, there was a moment, uh, as we were landing in Calgary when our future together hung in the balance. Because that's about the moment in the conversation where you say, really nice to visit with you. Thanks for the conversation. See ya. Right? But, I decided at that moment I'd ask, would you and your wife ever consider coming to our place for supper. And, of course, he was delighted by the idea. So I got home. I mentioned this to Tennille. She also was fairly delighted. <laughs> and uh, I met him downtown for lunch once a little later. And then, and then eventually there was a cold December evening, uh, just maybe a month later, where I, I picked up he and his wife outside of Safeway, and it was cold in Calgary that day. I remember they were very bundled up, and they didn't have a car, and, and uh, they were stu- both students at university, and so I picked them up and, and um, drove them to our place, and what began really on that plane and then that evening was a wonderful friendship that has, has it's been incredible for these, for these 10 years. We've cared for each other through house fires and hip replacements. pretty much covers everything. And uh, we've seen each other move around. We've seen each other grow. We've seen each other establish, change. They've come here and visited. We've gone there. And then when they heard I was coming to Calgary this week, they, they begged me. They actually made me cancel where I was staying in the first place so that I could stay with, with them. Um, Danica is their oldest. And this is a true, <laughs> this is a true child of Persia. 
I think all I ever saw her eat was black olives. I kid you not. She ate, she ate 15. I counted 15 at that particular meal, and there was, there was, there was more to come. I am so glad I cannot tell you how glad I am that Jesus prompted me to lean across that seat, to hurdle the boundary that was there. It has changed our family. It's changed my life in so many ways. Everywhere we look, boundaries keep people apart. Deep historical hurts, uh, prejudices, long-standing rifts, uh, borders, lies, beliefs, even just distances. Even right here in our own valley, we see religious boundaries. We see ethnic boundaries. We see economic boundaries, educational boundaries. We see political perspectives or environmental stances or even hygiene practices that keep us apart. Boundaries, barriers, hurdles, chasms, keeping people apart, keeping communities suspicious of one another, keeping families isolated. But Jesus never saw a boundary that he didn't promptly crush. He's a first-class hurdler. He's like the the Wreck-It Ralph of the gospel smashing through walls for the sake of the people that he loves. I mean, think about how he got to you. Think about the boundaries he had to crush to bring you in. Some of you at an extreme distance. Some of you filled with distrust. Some of you who outright rejected who Jesus was and what he was offering you for years. Some of you, there was family struggles that kept you away. Sometimes it was years of addiction or just lack of interest or maybe a strong self-reliance. Some of you felt incredibly unloved, unwanted, alone. Some of you have just been super busy and you've kept yourself super busy. And for years you were super busy and you were, you were not aware of Jesus' love and purpose for you. And he smashed that boundary. Or maybe it was just the sin and the shame that poisoned your soul. And he smashed that boundary too. All these barriers that Jesus smashed to get to you. And as we've been exploring the New Testament together, we've witnessed many stories of how Jesus was crushing boundaries to get to people. And this week in our community Bible experience, we hit the the fourth of the four Gospels or the four stories, good news stories about Jesus. We hit the Gospel of John. And John's Gospel is a bit different than the other three that we've already read, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. One of the ways it's different is that it focuses on fewer stories, but then it gives more detail in those stories, particularly when it comes to Jesus and his relentless pursuit of people. And when it comes to boundary crushing, there is no greater story, I think, in all the Gospels than this one that's found early in the Gospel of John, the story of Jesus meeting a foreign woman at a famous well. So are you ready to see Jesus crush some boundaries? Maybe you brought a Bible this morning. It's in John chapter 4. There's Bibles underneath your seats, or if you have a phone or a device, you can look it up, or you can just listen, and I'll be reading it through. Here it is, John chapter 4, 1 through 25. I will stop along the way. 
Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees, that's another religious group that was really big on the rules, the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. This was the prophet John who preceded uh, Jesus, not the writer of the Gospel of John. Different guy. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So, Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Galilee. Judea is down kind of to the south, and Galilee is up to the north. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Well, let's just talk, let's pause for a moment and talk about a few of the boundaries Jesus just crushed. The first one Jesus crushed is the geopolitical boundary. The Samaritan people lived in an area known as, surprise, surprise, Samaria. And it was, it was located between Judea, this region around Jerusalem, and Galilee, where Jesus spent a lot of his ministry time. So when Jesus said he had to go through Samaria, he was right. The straightest route from Judea to Galilee, Galilee, why do I keep saying Galilee? Galilee took you through Samaria. But, but many Jews, um, even though they had to travel, you know, up to, up to Galilee, even though it was shorter to go through Samaria, they would kind of go the longer way around. They'd kind of skirt the border to avoid contamination. Samaria was, in their opinion, a bad neighborhood. And no self-respecting Jew spent more time there than was absolutely necessary. Some Jews did travel through Samaria, but when they did, they kept their distance. They kind of minimized the interaction with the locals. You know, keep the, keep the windows rolled up, honey. Lock the doors, right? Dangerous area of town. But not Jesus. He had to go through Samaria, he says. Or I, I love it. I don't do this very often. I love how the old King James puts it. Anyone remember? He must needs go. Say that. He must needs go through Samaria. I love that. He must needs go. For Jesus, this wasn't just a shortcut. This was a deliberate choice. A choice to crush a boundary in order to keep a commitment. In order to keep an appointment. An appointment that would change the destiny of one unloved woman. And through her, a whole community. This is actually the heart of Christian missions and the desire there has been to cross those geopolitical boundaries must needs go to those people who have never heard. People who have never heard of the good news of Jesus and this has been at the heart of Christian missions where there's this, there's like a compulsion within us. We don't go the shortest, we don't go the, the long route to avoid. We do whatever it takes to go across those boundaries to reach the people that God loves. So Jesus crushes the geopolitical boundary and it leads him obviously to crush a second one. The racial boundary. John, who's writing this story to second generation Christians who 
very likely live outside of Israel and are a bit removed from the context, he throws in this little comment to explain this woman's shock that Jesus would ask her for a drink. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's putting it mildly. As I already pointed out, the Jews avoided Samaria because they kind of regarded it as hostile territory. And why? Well, Jews saw these Samaritans as kind of the muddied spawn of unfaithful Jews. Jews who'd intermarried with non-Jewish folks during and after the exile, which was hundreds of years before. For you Harry Potter fans, these are the mudbloods. Yes. And their very presence just kind of galled the Jews. It bugged them. But the Samaritans were no angels either. They returned the hate and the disdain with equal measure, regarding themselves as true worshipers of Yahweh. And the racial tension was evident everywhere that you went. It's even highlighted, we know this, it's highlighted in some of the other gospel stories. When, for example, a good, what, Samaritan helps a wounded Jew, which for those who were hearing the story that day, it was kind of like telling them today that, you know, it was the good terrorist who helped them. That's how it felt to them. That's how much they pulled back from the idea that there was a good Samaritan. So does Jesus let this racial boundary keep him away from this woman? No, obviously not. Not a chance. He crushes it by simply asking her for a drink of water. But before we even go on to the encounter, there's, there's just one more boundary we have to notice that Jesus crushes. And it's one that can kind of go unnoticed by those of us in the 21st century. century. Jesus crushes also the gender boundary. Now, we don't think that Jesus engaging in a conversation, asking for a drink of water, alone at a well, is very strange. But it's because we have actually no idea how taboo this would have been. Initiating a conversation with a woman alone at a well, especially when even in literature and in those days, the well is where many famous men had found their wives. It would have been seen as deeply improper. It would have invited scandal and accusations of sexual immorality. I'm not kidding. Some of us are going, oh, come on. Yeah, it's true. Even his disciples, when they return later, they're shocked to find Jesus talking with this woman. It just wasn't done. It wasn't appropriate. And this was true across all the cultures in those days. Jewish, uh, Greek, Roman. This is how they kind of saw it. Listen, I, I, uh, I will read for you from a, a scholar. Um, I don't often give you long quotes, but I thought this was helpful. Craig Keener, a New Testament scholar, he has this to say. Just listen to what he, how he describes the understanding people had in those days, Jewish, uh, Greek, and Roman, of, of, of women and, and this kind of interaction. According to Jewish sages, Jewish men were to avoid unnecessary conversation with women. Thus, among six activities listed as unbecoming for a scholar, one of them is conversing with a woman. And in theory, the strict argued that a wife, listen to this, could be divorced without her marriage settlement if she spoke to a man in the street. The oldest tradition especially attributed this custom to the danger of sexually ambiguous situations that could lead to further sin. But in time, however, sages also worried about sending the wrong message to onlookers. Like, if one talked with one, even one's own sister or wife in public, someone who did not know that the woman was a relative might get the wrong impression. 
Any wife being in private with a man other than her husband was normally suspected of adultery. Yeah, a little bit of sexism going on there too, but hey, this is the culture that Jesus is living into. Traditional Greek culture, likewise, normally viewed it as shameful for a wife to be seen talking with a young man. Uh, A gossiper, he's referring to another writer, would complain that women are immoral if they are conversers with men. Traditional Romans also regarded wives speaking publicly with other husbands as a horrible matter, reflecting possible flirtatious designs and subverting the moral order of the state. This is a conversation that a woman's having with a man, you understand. Subverting the moral order of the state. Even today, Craig Keener goes on, in traditional Middle Eastern societies, quote, social intercourse between unrelated men and women is almost equivalent to sexual intercourse. If such a man and woman are, quote, are alone together for more than 20 minutes, it's assumed that they've had intercourse. I'm not making this up. The gender boundary was huge, and yet Jesus crushed it. Why? Because someone he loved, in fact, a whole community of people that he loved were on the other side of that boundary, and he was not content to leave them there. He must needs go there. He must needs find them. you got to use that this, sometime this week. I must needs have a coffee. You know, Jesus must needs cross into their space, you know, get in their way, offer them new life. This is where the conversation is going, but Jesus isn't done crushing boundaries yet. So let's read on. So this Samaritan woman expresses shock that Jesus would cross a boundary, a big boundary, and ask her, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. Jesus answers her like this. He said in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock? Which I think is the equivalent, by the way, of, you know, who do you think you are anyway? Totally unimpressed at this point. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw Water. You know what I think? I think she's, I think she's baiting him at this point. I think she thinks he's angling for something. And she doesn't trust him one bit, so she figures, fine, you're offering me this great water, I'll never be thirsty again, I'll call you bluff. Go ahead, give it to me. And this is the moment that Jesus has been waiting for. The moment when he will really begin to show this woman who he really is. In order to do that, Jesus is going to crush Some more boundaries. Listen to this. Verse 16. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. He said to her, you were right when you say you have no husband. In fact, the fact is, you've had five husbands. 
And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. What's the fourth boundary? The boundary of purity. You could say the boundary of morality, but I think it's more about, because it's a purity culture, it's a boundary of purity which Jesus crushes. You see, no matter how you cut it, this is a woman who's experienced many failed relationships. And whether it's you know, unfairly or not, it puts her in a category of damaged goods. It puts her in a category of the impure. But I want to correct something important here. Something that I think when we understand it, it shows just how much more gracious and amazing Jesus really is. Many times we've read this story, or people have read this story, and they've seen this Samaritan woman who's been divorced five times as an immoral woman. A woman who's just moved around from man to man. That's just not true. Women very, very rarely left their husbands in that culture. They couldn't. They didn't have the social power. They didn't have the means. They very rarely had a way they could divorce a man who was usually much older than her. So what does it mean? It means that this woman has been divorced by five different men. This is a woman who's had five different men pledge their faithfulness to her, only to then break it off and cast her out. In that day, a woman who was cast out of a marriage usually had very few options. Return to her family, hope for some protection, or enter a life of prostitution. It seems like she was able to find other men to maybe, you know, be with who then pledged their faithfulness to her, but that never lasted. And now the man that she's with won't even give her the dignity of marriage. So she's living in this house, likely as the lowest servant in the group, probably in exchange for some social protection, probably in exchange for sex, but she's there as kind of, you know, the lowest of the low. The translation here is that this is a deeply unloved, deeply wounded woman. And as many have pointed out, she comes to this well alone in the hottest time of the day, which suggests very strongly that she herself is a social outcast, that she's also despised by other women in the community. So how does Jesus crush this boundary? I mean, doesn't he seem a bit insensitive here? sort of bringing up the the most awful thing in her experience in life, drawing attention to her shame and her pain and trauma. Is that what Jesus is doing? It's easy to perhaps think that until you realize, as she did, that Jesus knew this information about her all along. It wasn't like someone slipped him a note halfway through the conversation. He knew about her when he sat down. He knew who she was when he asked her for a drink. He knew who who she was when when he told her that she could receive living water from him. That he'd been willing to talk to her, to engage her in conversation. And that, and listen to this, this is so important, that she realizes that Jesus doesn't want to just take something from her, which everyone else wants, to use her. But rather Jesus sees her, knows her story, and he wants to give something to her. Something that will change her life forever. And her backstory, her struggle, the fact that she was way out there, rejected by everyone, her own people, her own family. That wasn't what kept Jesus away. That's what compelled Jesus to come in close. 
It's what made him crush the boundary in the first place. And this is the moment in the conversation where everything shifts for this woman. Jesus moves from being the creepy Jewish guy at the well to being a prophet of God. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. And then possibly to get off the subject of the marital history, she shifts to religion. She herself draws our attention to the fifth boundary that Jesus crushes. The religious boundary. I can see you are a prophet, she says. Yeah, no kidding. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. Mount Gerizim is what she's likely talking about. Worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Watch Jesus crush this one. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Do you hear all that? All the history that existed between these peoples, all the debates, all the rhetoric, all the rejection, all the doctrine, all the disagreement. Jesus just crushes it by saying, oh, oh, that, that's over now. We've moved on. He doesn't deny the old tensions and disagreements. He simply says, oh, that's no longer relevant anymore. We worship God in a new way. God is doing something new. Five boundaries. Five significant boundaries that kept people apart. Five boundaries that kept people from each other. That kept people from all that the Father had for them. Five boundaries that Jesus just crushed. And why does he crush those boundaries? He crushes them so that he can change this woman's life forever. But in order to do that, there's one more boundary to go. One more boundary that has to be crushed if she's to receive all that God has for her. It's a different kind of boundary. A boundary that she is not aware of, or to some extent she's aware of it, but it's the boundary of unbelief. The truth is, she didn't know who she was talking to. She didn't know who he was. She, she had some, some vague belief and some hope and some ideas, but she didn't know who he was until Jesus revealed himself to her. And until he revealed himself to her, she would not be able to receive God's ultimate gift. So Jesus crushes that final boundary, the boundary of unbelief, by revealing his full identity to her. Listen to this. After Jesus had crossed the religious boundary, the woman says, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. It's not that she doesn't have belief. She's looking forward to a time when this Messiah will come. She has belief, but it's not in him yet. And this is what makes all the difference. Then Jesus declares, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the Messiah that was promised that would come. I'm the one you've hoped for. I, the one sitting here on the edge of this well, I am the one that you've been hoping would come. All this boundary crushing so far has been leading up to this revelation. And it's crazy because, do you know, in the Gospel of John, everything is about belief. Everything's about believing in Jesus. But in the Gospel of John, 
She's the first person that gets the inside scoop on who Jesus really is. She's the first person who receives a revelation of Jesus' true identity. It's not the disciples. It's not the Jews. It's not the religious elite. It's not the goody-goodies or the squeaky clean. It's her. This one woman is the first person to receive a full revelation of who Jesus is. And that revelation changes her forever. Look what happens. The disciples show up with lunch. They're a bit scandalized by the animated discussion that's going on with Jesus and Ms. Waterpot. And she tears off, probably intimidated by those goofs, leaves her pot behind, and she begins telling people in her village to come and meet this Jesus, this man, listen to this, who told me everything I ever did, which is quite a testimony when you think about it. Jesus refuses lunch, takes a moment to instruct his disciples on the importance of people and what he's really up to, the reason why they're there in the first place. And then the locals start showing up in droves to meet Jesus, this man who had crushed all these boundaries and was now sitting by the well. Listen to this. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. That was her testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed, I love this, he stayed two days. He stayed two days in a place everyone avoided. He stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is, what? A prophet? A good man? A super nice guy? No. We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Every boundary crushed, and a whole new community of faith is born, coming to love and trust Jesus, receiving this revelation of who he really is, brought by this woman who has had her life changed by Jesus. But before we move on to application, how we, you know, where do we go with this? Can I just point out something to you? This is really important. Because not only did Jesus' actions here on this day crush boundaries and rearrange the destinies for a whole bunch of people, it did that. What do you think it did for this one woman? How do you think it changed her life? This rejected, unloved outcast, this woman who would go alone to the well to avoid contact with others and then return to her home to be ordered around and used up like a slave. Her life was never the same. She went from being that woman who'd been passed around like an awful toy to being the woman through whom the Messiah was revealed to us. And I will guarantee you that her status was immediately raised that day. That her life was never the same after that. That Jesus' revelation to her saved her spiritually. Yes, she came to know the one who loved her, who knew her story, who didn't reject her, who invited her in, who revealed himself to her. But more than that, even personally, he changed her whole life in relationship with other people. Where now, she was no longer the outcast, but she was the one through whom the Messiah was revealed to us. And i got to stand back and say, you know what? Jesus is just that kind of Savior. 
that He would actually not only care about our whole destiny, but He'd care about our lives today. That He'd raise this woman up and restore her to a place of beauty and a place of wholeness and a place of regard. What a story. It makes me love Jesus even more. And it leaves me with some thought-provoking questions. Thought-provoking for me. Thought-provoking for us as a church. And I'd like to hear what you have to say. I know we're running out of time. I knew this sermon was going to be long. But uh, hey, when you're into one of your favorite stories, what can you do? Here's the question. What are some of the boundaries that exist in our valley? We're not going to even look at the broader world for a moment, okay? I'm asking you to examine what are some of the boundaries that exist right here between, you know, the Skimmerhorn, the Selkirks, the lake and the border. What are some of the boundaries that exist right here in our valley? Can you shout some out and I'll repeat them. Let's do that, Olin. Shout some out. What are some of the boundaries that exist right here in the valley? Neighbors that don't get along. Bountiful, thank you. Boundaries. Not being a crest tonight. What? There was another? Native peoples, indigenous peoples, that's right. What else? Age, excellent. Economic status, absolutely. There's some super rich people. And there's some super poor people in Creston. And there's, you know, most of us in between, but there are boundaries there. Absolutely. What are some of the other boundaries? Say again. Religion. Religion. Yes. This is in particular, and I've talked with others outside the valley, this is a particular valley where there's some very strong silos in religion. Sects and groups and uh, some churches, but, but different religious groups. Absolutely. Lots of religious boundaries. There was another hand up. Country. Can you explain that? Okay. There's a boundary between us and the States. Yeah, they remind us every time we cross. There is a boundary there. But you're right. The boundary is even bigger than that. That's right. Unbelief. Okay. So difference in belief, do you mean in particular or just the fact that there's a boundary there? People don't believe. Don't, don't trust. Don't, yeah, don't believe. Other boundaries. Yes. Natives have been mentioned or indigenous peoples. That's right. What else? Say again. Employment, yes. Cameron. Size. What do you mean by that, Cameron? Okay, so physical. Yeah, physical stuff. Sure. Absolutely. That's good. Education. Education, absolutely. How about singles and families? How about that? Boundaries that exist? How about in the summer when a particular group of people come to visit and serve and work. And I'm not talking about the Albertans. But there's some boundary issues with them too. As a born and bred Albertan, I can say that. I changed my license plate as quick as I could, so I didn't have to face that boundary. There's boundaries everywhere, right? There really are. They exist even here in our valley. And there's more if we were to, put, to push further. We'd realize there are boundaries. There are people I avoid. There's, there's people I want to uh, stay away from. 
And, and maybe we aren't even always aware that that's in our hearts, but there are real boundaries there. And so the second question is, how do you think Jesus wants us to crush those boundaries so people can come to know his love? How do you think he wants us to do that? Let's get really practical. How do you crush a boundary? Well, we take a page out of Jesus' book. We follow him, do what he says, and do what he, do what he does, right? That's true. But as we wrap up, and I know our time is almost out, let me rattle through some practical ways that we can crush boundaries, and then we'll have coffee. The first one is, you've got to just get up and go. You know, we can't expect people to come across the boundary toward us. You've got to get up and go. This is what's so inspiring about Jesus. Must needs go through Samaria. And I know there's been times in my life, I mean, I told the story at the start that puts me in a really great light. I leaned across the seat and I met Akbar, great friend. But you know what? There's lots of other times where I just got to duck my head and move past slowly because I just don't want to engage. That happens all the time. We got to get up and go. We got to realize that Jesus called us to crush the boundaries. He's called us to cross. The second one is to repent. Repent of our prejudice. Repent of our fear. Ways that we've perpetuated the very boundaries that Jesus himself died to crush. I do think of the pickers. I do think of our our friends in Bountiful. I do think of those where we can end up through fear or the unknown or our prejudices end up reinforcing the walls that Jesus is trying to wreck. You know? And so we have to repent as the people of God and say, Wow, Jesus, you hung on the cross to tear down a dividing wall of hostility to make people one. And as Christians, we can end up trying to build that wall back up. We need to repent for that. We need to ask for God's forgiveness for that. The third thing, this gets a little more practical in how we do it, is that we need to approach others humbly as learners, not as people who've got everything they need. You know what I'm saying? We need to approach humbly. One of the beautiful things in the story is Jesus does what with this woman? He asks her for a drink. He needs something. He approaches humbly. And ask her for a drink. And so many times we have made mistakes of approaching those boundaries that have existed as though we've got everything you need. If you just shut up and listen to us, everything would be great. Rather, Jesus is calling us to cross those boundaries with humility. This is particularly important when we're crossing into territory where there's been long historical hurt. I do think of our native peoples in that regard. There's been long historical pain and hurt, often unacknowledged, often unrepented of by the church. And when we cross into those boundaries, man, we better have our hat in our hands. We better be repenting. We better be there as humble learners to receive from them as they teach us. The fourth one is to listen and serve. I won't say much more about that because you can get it. The fifth one is that we need to love people and not land projects. You know what I'm saying? Jesus calls us to cross the boundaries, not for our name's sake, not to build something great, but to love the people he loves. Number six, be open to the challenge of Jesus in our everyday life to rethink the way that we live, the places we go, the people we invite to our parties, the way that we are, you know, kind of living life with people. And then the the seventh one is to just pray, that we would pray together for the crushing of boundaries that keep people away from the love of Jesus for them. That we pray for the dismantling of those boundaries in our own lives, in our own church family, in our own valley. And then we be 
part of Jesus' answer to that prayer as we cross the boundaries. And so, as I close today, I'm going to ask you very straight up, will you commit to be boundary crushers? For the sake of the good news of Jesus, for the sake of people that he loves, for the sake of whole groups of people who don't fully understand or have never heard the love and the grace of Jesus, will you commit to be a boundary crusher as a follower of Jesus? If you will, stand up. I want to pray. Will you commit to be a boundary crusher? A person who crosses the boundaries that are in front of you prayerfully and with repentance? Acknowledging your fear, acknowledging your prejudice, acknowledging your struggle, will you be the kind of person that crosses the boundary for the sake of people Jesus loves? This is going to change the world as it changes our valley. Just as one woman coming to know Jesus changed her whole community, if we will commit to cross the boundary, to show the love and grace of Jesus, the world will change. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the ultimate boundary crusher. And we thank you and praise you for being the one who took every boundary that separated us from you, every boundary that separated us from the Father, every boundary that separates us from each other, and you crushed them on the cross. And that through the Spirit of God given to us as your church, as your people, you have called us to live out your boundary-crushing love as we reach across, as we move out, as we get up and go, as we love the people that you love. And I pray, Lord Jesus, today that as the Erickson Covenant Church, that as followers of yours, we'd be a people who live out your boundary-crushing love for the sake of the people in our lives, for the sake of the people who are far away. Lord Jesus, thank you. We ask that you would lead us in your grace and your goodness. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you today. We have coffee time. Wow, I know that's a rapid transition. If you'd like to talk more about this, We can talk. God bless you.